0: This is the This Is Gonna Hurt Podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. Hello friends, and welcome to a Wednesday wisdom episode of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. And if you're wondering why the J, the answer is I am not a bagpipe player. And if that joke doesn't make any sense, I encourage you to check out episode zero where I explain that joke as well as the purpose of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast. But as to today's episode, our Wednesday Wisdom episodes are this. I am sharing the audio of my sermons from the church I pastor, Evident Grace Fellowship in Fredericksburg, Virginia, as well as sermons from churches I have pastored prior, as well as sermons that I've preached at other places. And I'm sharing them with you for this reason. My sermons are usually not too long. They're between 30 and 40 minutes long. And by sharing them with you, it gives you a chance for some spiritual encouragement midweek. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's challenging and encouraging, like I said. And if it is, would you please send me a note at uh, gordon at jgordonnuckin.com or maybe even share this sermon online, Facebook, or on your Instagram story. I hope you enjoy it. So let's get to the sermon. Romans 9, beginning in verse 1. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Uh, I did my undergrad work at East Carolina University. That's ECU, not VCU, but East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. I don't know how many of you have heard of ECU. We have two really famous alumni. Vince McMahon of WWE, WWF wrestling fame, I know, And Sandra Bullock. And sadly, Sandy graduated three months before I got there. Oh, well. Anyway, so Sandy and Vince McMahon graduated from East Carolina. Now, the campus is designed in this way. There's a central campus where almost everything happens. And then there's a section called the hill, which, imagine, is at the top of the hill. Now, uh, let me tell you about the hill. As you took the road up, on the right-hand side, there's a large field. And that's where everything from ultimate frisbee, flag football, and the marching band practice, and on the left, uh, that was like a commuter parking lot. As you go up the hill on the right, at least back in my day, there were basketball courts and volleyball courts, and on the left was a string of dorm rooms. Let me tell you about the dorm rooms. The first was Jones. Now, Jones had a a cafeteria at the bottom, and there were four floors, and it was a co-ed dorm. There was a, a floor for men, a floor for women, so it bore a certain Reputation on campus. Now, beside Jones was the dorm that I lived in for four years, Charles B. Acock Dorm. And it was typically a freshman dorm, and it had its own reputation, which was for drinking and partying and, and freshmen who didn't know how to handle their party. Now, beside us was Scott, and that was for the athletes, football, basketball players. They had a private cafeteria. They had a private workout facility. And you really just didn't go in that at all unless you were an athlete. Then there's Belk Dorm and some other dorm I just don't remember the name of. So that was the setup. Now, I lived in ACOC Dorm for four years. I was a resident advisor, an RA, which is a a loose authority figure, sort of akin to being in charge of Lord of the Flies. And you manage these freshmen. And uh, and like I said, beside us was Jones. Now, I don't know why, somewhere in the history and the legacy of East Carolina, a rivalry was struck up between Jones and my dorm, ACOC. I don't know why we didn't like each other. But when you arrived at East Carolina, you were told that Jones was terrible. And Jones was told that Acock was horrible. So about every three weeks, this would happen. Someone over at Jorm- Jones would raise a window, stick their head out, and go, "Acock stinks! They would say something other than that, but we're going to go with "Acock stinks today, okay? As loud as they could. And then what would happen is someone on Acock dorm would raise their head windows, stick their head out, and offer some worse criticism of Jones. And then a barrage of dozens of people would stick their head out, and insults and yelling and cursing would go back and forth. This happened every couple of weeks, and it would typically last anywhere from five minutes to an hour, yelling and shouting and cursing. Every now and then we take on a different topic. I remember when Bill Clinton won the election in 92. For some reason, we took up the election. And for whatever reason, Jones, liked Clinton and Aycock, didn't. And we shouted profanities about the election back and forth. But ECU was not typically a political college. We just liked yelling and shouting at each other. So we would typically go with, you stink, or whatever the case may be. Incredibly annoying, sometimes humorous, uh, but after a while you just get tired of people yelling. Here's why I tell you such story not to regale you with East Carolina life in the late 80s and early 90s, though there are many, many stories. That interaction between Jones and Acock Dorham is a picture of how the church typically interacts with each other when we talk about the sovereignty of God. That's pretty much how we do it. Now, if you don't know what the sovereignty of God is, we're going to talk about it a lot today, but the sovereignty of God, sovereignty means God's right, To rule and reign over this world because he's the creator and the king. He does what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. And your opinion is not typically taken into account. God is sovereign. The arguments we have go like this. Well, did God choose who is going to be a believer before creation? Or did he look into the future and say, oh, that person is going to believe in me. I'm going to choose them. That argument happens. Some people like to say, God chose every single thing that's ever going to happen in the world before the world even existed. And some people say, well, no, he really just kind of allowed his people to do what they want. And this is furious, furious argumentation among the people of God. In seminaries, this is where you get down to the dirty and fight and yell at each other. And I've seen this go well, and I've seen it go poorly a lot. A lot of Jones-Dorm-Stinks kind of theology is how this has gone. Well, the book of Romans wants to talk about this topic a lot, dedicating chapters 8 and 9 to this topic. So when you're going to dedicate two entire very long chapters to this topic, God has decided that this topic is important. He cares what you think about this topic. Therefore, we should care. The scriptures are clear. That God is sovereign. So if you believe the scriptures, you've got to believe he's sovereign. We've got to figure out what that means. Now, we haven't looked at the book of Romans since November. We last looked at it on the last Sunday of November, and then we had Christmas or Advent, uh, and then I preached on a New Year's sermon last week, so now we're back. Fortunately, we're going to have a chance for some refresher. But we have looked at chapter 8 a little bit. Now we're going to get into chapter 9. Here's what our future looks like. This Sunday, we're going to look at sovereignty. Next Sunday, we're going to look at sovereignty. The following Sunday, we have a town hall meeting. And then the Sunday after that, we're going to look at sovereignty. Not because I want to beat a dead horse, but because Paul wants to talk about sovereignty that much. I invite all of you to follow up with me with questions or arguments or with Matt Murray or your EG leader or with the wonderful godly men and women in the church. Let's have these conversations because Paul has these conversations. So here's where we're going. Our big idea is this. God is sovereign, part one. The first in a trilogy. The first one's always great. Typically two and three in movies are bad. I'm going to do my best to make all three of these worthwhile. But God is sovereign, part one. And we're going to look at these three points. Paul is explaining a hard truth. If your explanation of sovereignty is easy, you missed it. It's a hard truth. Two, hard truths require humility. We should not be yelling at each other through our open windows. And three, God's sovereignty excludes some. Excludes some. Let's jump in to the first one. Paul is explaining a hard truth. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. Let's stop there. We're already a half a verse in. When was the last time someone told you something and they are like, no, 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 I'm telling you the truth. It's not always comforting. If I have to tell you that I'm telling you the truth, you might be doubting me. You might be wondering. Uh, When Amy and I were engaged, we had no money for a honeymoon. I may have told this story before. We had no money for a honeymoon. No idea how we were going to go to a honeymoon. And I got a phone call about a month before the wedding. And it was an insurance company. I had been a passenger on a head-on collision two years ago, I was fine. And they called me up and said, are you fine? I said, I'm fine. And they said, well, would you be $900 fine? It's like, I would be gladly be $900 fine. And they were basically just kind of paying me off to never bring it up. My error when they said, how are you feeling? I should have said, awful. And, but No, I'm not going to lie about that. I was fine. So I got off the phone and I said, Amy, guess what? They just gave us $900. And she's like, really? I was like, I'm telling you the truth. They're sending us a check for $900. When you have to say, I'm telling you the truth, there's a couple things going on. One, people are not believing what you're saying. Two, it's just something hard to believe. Or three, it's something you don't want to believe. That's what Paul is saying. Whatever he said in chapter 8, he said... I'm not only telling you the truth, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. That's like doubling down for an apostle. Like, hey, I'm not only telling you the truth, I'm telling you like Christ is telling you. If we're going to hop in, what did Paul just say? What is it that he said that was so tough, he's got to swear by Jesus Christ he's telling the truth? Okay? So we need to do some background work. Here's the background. God chose his children before time began. That's what the Bible says happened. What Paul just said was, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. That's his hard truth. Before anything, God... Knew you. This is not a foreknowledge of a fact. It's a foreknowledge of relationship. And he predestined some to believe in him. Predestined means he decided your destiny ahead of time. And what was your destiny? To believe in Jesus, to be like Jesus, to have your relationship with God repaired, and ultimately to be glorified in heaven. That's a hard truth. That's a hard truth. He's saying, before anything, God foreknew you. Again, not a foreknowledge of a thought, but a foreknowledge of relationship. Before anything ever happened, don't know what that looked like. I don't know what God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit were doing. All I know is that he knew you, and he chose you. He predestined. The word predestined can only mean one thing. The destiny was decided beforehand. That's a hard truth. Why? Because it means some people were not predestined. It means that your faith is really something God's given you. You don't get to take responsibility for it. That's a hard truth. Paul would tell you, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. If it doesn't mean what I just said, it's not a hard truth. Paul doesn't have to swear by anything if it's not a hard truth. If it's easy, like, oh, he just looked into the future and decided who's going to be his, that's not a hard truth. It's an easy truth. Paul's saying, I swear by you, I'm telling you the truth. Let's keep going. Paul then went on to say, because God chose his children, no one can take that choosing away. That's encouraging. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one, if you are a Christian, if you have faith in Jesus, no one can charge you as a non-believer. It doesn't matter. No one can look at you and say, you aren't a believer. Don't worry about it. They might say it, but they can't bring any charge against you that would change it. It's secure. It's yours. If God's going to choose you before the beginning of everything, you're safe. Don't worry. If you ever thought, I was a believer, but I think I've lost my salvation, no worries. Don't. You can't even bring a charge against yourself that would have any effect before God. You have been chosen. This is a hard truth in Christ because sometimes we've all doubted our salvation, we've wondered. And on a, a small note, and I've told many of you this before, don't worry. People who aren't saved don't sit around worrying about whether they're saved or not. Okay? So if you're like, oh no, if I lost my salvation, you're good. The fact that you've thought that is probably the fact that you're a believer. Let's keep going. Another hard truth. As a result, the world hates you. As it is written, For your sake, we're being killed all the day long, and we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The world does not like Christians. They don't. The world does not like you. Do not seek the favor of the world, nor should you seek the hatred of the world. Your faith in Jesus is enough. The world doesn't hate you because of who you're going to vote for in 2020, or at least they shouldn't. The world shouldn't hate you whether you drink alcohol or not. The world shouldn't hate you whether you homeschool, public school, private school. None of that should be why the world should hate you. One reason why the world should hate you. What is it? Jesus Christ. That's the only reason the world should hate you. Because Jesus calls the whole world and says, You're sinning, and the only hope you have is to be forgiven by my death and resurrection. That's the call of the Christian life. Is that you're, the hatred of the world on you should be one reason, Jesus Final hard truth. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You say, Gordon, that's not hard. That's a comforting truth. How many of you have struggled with that truth? How many of you thought, oh, God does not love me anymore? Or at least he loves me less. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Please read that, write it down, put it on a sticky, put it on your mirror. Nothing can separate you from God's love. If he's going to, before anything's been created, choose your name and choose you and send his son to live and die and resurrected for you and promising to persevere you through the hatred of the world, nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. Nothing you can do can separate you. You didn't do anything to earn the salvation. You're not going to do anything to keep it. It's a hard truth because we struggle with it. I promise you, some of you yesterday did not feel loved. Some circumstance or disappointment or some person made you feel unloved, and my heart says, I am sorry. There are moments yesterday I did not feel loved. But you remind yourself please remind yourself that the love of God is never, ever removed from the life of someone who has faith in Jesus Christ, ever. All of this is why Jesus, all this is why Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I promise you. Let's move on. Hard truths require humility. Guys, uh, before I even get here, our denomination is known really for two things. This is Uber PCA Sunday. Uh, We're part of the Presbyterian Church in America. We're known for two things, really. Predestination and infant baptism. We hit them both today. Let's play two, okay? As a result, we should be the most humble denomination on the face of the planet. Of the churches in this town, they should go, Evident Grace is amazingly humble. Unfortunately, Embracing the truths of sovereignty and predestination and divine election often makes us arrogant. And we present ourselves as the grad school of Christianity and all the other churches never even got accepted into the bachelor's program. Let it not be among evident grace or among your own heart. If God gives you the faith to embrace difficult truths, just say thank you. And in speaking of difficult truths to others, speak in humility. Paul knows what humility is to an extent that I have never, ever experienced in my life. Look what he says. I'm not lying. He says it again. Really, I promise you, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reminds me of what I'm telling you is true. And then he goes in a direction that may seem a little off topic, but I'm going to help us. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Okay, what in the world is he talking about? Well, Paul is Jewish. And I spent our baptism time talking about what it meant to be Jewish. Living as the family of God, right? Paul calls himself the Jew of Jews. I mean, he's as Jewish as you get. He's as Jewy as a Jew can get. His words. But so many of the Israelites and the Jewish people do not believe in Jesus Christ. And in his day, they weren't believing in Jesus Christ either. In fact, many, many Jewish people who didn't believe in Jesus Christ sought to kill any who would profess in Jesus Christ. Not seeing it as like a denomination, but actually seeing it as a heresy that needed to be destroyed. But Paul loves his brothers and sisters so much that he would be willing to not be a Christian and die in torment and hell if more Jewish people believed in Jesus. That's what he just said. He says, I love my Jewish brothers and sisters so much And they're not believing in Jesus. And I want them to believe in Jesus so much that I would be willing to be accursed and spend torment in hell if more of them would believe in Jesus. That type of humility is possible because I believe the Scriptures and I believe that Paul is telling the truth. You see, Paul's belief in sovereignty and predestination didn't make him lazy with evangelism. It didn't make him go, well, whoever's elected is elected. If God's going to choose, they're going to get in there. I don't have to do anything. No. It made Paul passionate. Paul was playing with a winning hand. I know people are going to believe when I share the gospel because God's chosen some to believe. I can be bold in my evangelism because I know people are going to believe, but his heart is broken for those who don't. So much so that he says, I'd be willing to be accursed if more would believe. Friends, this is the picture of our proper posture. Our salvation, our election, should break our hearts for more and more people to profess faith in Jesus Christ. Our motivations to share the gospel is a humility. I don't deserve to believe in Jesus, nor do you. And I don't know who in the world God's chosen, but I'm going to share the gospel with as many and my heart's broken for every single person who does not have faith in Jesus. This is not a matter of your gifting. It's not a matter of your personality profile. It's a matter of being saved by Jesus Christ and having your heart broken in humility and desiring more and more people to come to know Christ. Paul is looking out and he's like, I can't believe that more and more Jewish people, more and more Israelites are not believing And I want them to believe so badly, I would be willing to be accursed if they did. By God's grace, he's not going to do that. Why? Because nothing's going to separate you from the love of God. But Paul's passion to see other people come to know Jesus is that great. So Paul spends a few moments in these next verses, not quite yet, Paul's going to spend a couple moments explaining to us why it breaks his heart so much that the Jewish people don't believe. Here it is. God's sovereignty excludes some. God's grace, his forgiveness, is not for everyone because he has chosen some. And despite what we're getting ready to read, many of these Jewish people did not believe. Here were the blessings of growing up uh, Jewish. And this is what I explained in our baptism. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. If you were raised Jewish, you had all of that. You had the story of the patriarchs, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You had the law. You knew what it looked like to live like a person of God. Jesus Christ came from Jewish lineage. They had all those things, but they didn't believe. They were excluded from God's sovereignty. Not all, because of course there were many Jewish people that believed, but many did not, nor do many today. God's heart is—excuse me—Paul's heart is broken because election doesn't include every single person. Does it make God evil? No. Why? Because God is sovereign, and the outworking of His will. Is according to what he desires and is consistent with his character. Now I need to take a a small aside here as time begins to press. And this is why we're only handling five verses today and we're going to creep along here. Kids, I need every kid in the crowd. And when I say that, the parents perk up. So it'll get most of you. To you, children of evident grace, belong the scriptures, the worship, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, in the people of God. Correct? All my kids, you've been raised going to church. You've seen the Lord's Supper taken. Some of you have taken the Lord's Supper. 50 some weeks a year, you have come and you've heard the gospel preached. You've heard a call to repentance at every single service this church has ever had. Children of evident grace, you are blessed. Never be arrogant with your faith. Never be arrogant with your faith. We baptize our kids because we raise them as part of the family of God, rightfully we should. But there is a time for all of our children to proclaim their faith outwardly and express it. Paul Peter describes it this way in 2 Peter 1 therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Everybody is called to confirm you're calling an election. That means if you've been elected and called to be a Christian, then you should confirm it. How do you confirm it? You take it by taking the Lord's Supper. You confirm it by growing in godliness. You confirm it by a desire to be like Jesus. And parents, our call is to raise our children so that they themselves can confirm their election. My heart and hope and faith is that every single child in this church grows up Confirming and professing Jesus Christ. I trust it and count on it. But I also trust that God's work is going to do his work. And some raised in the faith stray away. And as they get older and stray away, I pray with broken heart with parents that they return. But God's sovereignty is as sovereign as our worst nightmare. He will choose and do What is according to his will. That should change us. Not in just mere knowledge. Satan believes in sovereignty. Sovereignty should transform us into a humble, worshipful, prophetic, evangelistic people. Let me move ourselves to a conclusion quickly. We uh, end each sermon with a truth, an application, and an action. A truth is something you can walk away holding on to. An application is the way we want to begin living. And an action is something I want us to do. Uh, So we saw that God is sovereign, and we looked at these truths. Let's jump to our truth here today. Approaching and understands God's sovereign choosing of some and excluding others requires humility and faith on our part. If God's sovereignty doesn't mean what we just saw, it's not a hard truth. If you can easily explain God's sovereignty, Paul wouldn't have to say, hey, this is a hard truth. Understanding it and approaching it requires humility and faith on our part. Chapter 9 is unnecessary in the Bible unless the truths of predestination and sovereignty are difficult for us to believe. Chapter 9 is specifically written because it's hard for us to believe that God would accept some, choose some, and exclude others. Application. Live knowing that God is so gracious that he chose you out of the whole world to believe in him. Do you have faith in Jesus? God chose you. If you have faith in Jesus, then you are among the chosen. Live knowing in humility. Why me, God? It makes no sense. And it doesn't. He chose you. He passed over many of his people to choose you. Action. Pray that God would transform your humility surrounding the sovereignty into a sorrow that leads to evangelism. As we wrestle with this hard truth, and we're going to keep wrestling and wrestling because Paul wants us to wrestle It should make us humble and say, God, give me a sorrow that pushes me to proclaim Jesus to as many as I can. God brings in the harvest. God has done the choosing. God has done the work. God has promised that his his word will not return void. Our approach, God, give me humility to proclaim Jesus to as many as possible. Not to be friends with the world. Not to curry favor with the world. Not to avoid persecution with the world. Not to make sure that we're the Christian that's liked by the world to be the humble believer in Jesus who proclaims Jesus to the world. Let's pray that God would do that individually and with us as a church. Let's bow our head. Heavenly Father, this is the beginning of us looking at a very, very difficult truth. We know it's difficult because Paul says it's difficult. He promises us. I'm not lying. Father, please move us to be a people that... Don't look for easy answers to hard truths, but wrestle with the hard truths. Would you allow that? Would you enable that to transform us in humility? Make us a humble, faith-filled, evangelistic people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.